Welcome to The Sound of the Hound. Series 2. The podcast about the early days of recorded sound. In it, we talk about the recording pioneers and artists who created the modern music industry over a hundred years ago. We look at the sometimes ridiculous lengths they went to to capture sound and the technology they used in order to do it. We come from the point of view of spirited amateurs. Yes, we're very much armchair enthusiasts. And we play a little scratchy music along the way. This podcast comes to you with the support of the EMI Archive Trust, the Music and Technology Archive. This is the sound of the hound. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of the sound of the hound. I'm Dave Holly. I'm James Hall. Hi. And who are we talking about this week? Today, we're going to talk about Adelina Patti, who is one of the most famous opera singers of all time. She is. That you've never heard that of. you've never heard of. She has an incredible story, and part of it, obviously, includes our friend Fred Geisberg and the Gramophone Company. To start with, I'm just going to read out a quote about Patty from The Rough Guide to Opera, just to give you a slight taster, because it's a hell of a story. I think it's my favourite. I think I've said that before. I, I ended up, after researching a, a bit of a soft touch, soft, soft, soft spot. touch, soft spot soft for her. Spot. In fact... I think she's rather gorgeous in all sorts of ways. All right, Dave. Calm down, Dave. Uh, <laughs> Adelina Patti, Rough Guide to Opera. Uh, 1843 to 1919, Italian soprano, one of the legends of opera. Patti was a child prodigy, making her debut age seven, and had already toured the world by the time she was 19. She was a favourite of Rossini and sang at his funeral and won the hearts of just about everyone we met, including Dave Holly. Including me. From Verdi to George Bernard Shaw. So that's just a paragraph about Patty. Well, I've, I've got the theory, you know, she's a child star, isn't she? she her, her parents are both musical. Her, both father, opera her father was an opera singer, her mother was an opera singer. She's brought up in that world at seven. She makes her debut in New York. They moved to New York when she's three. She's born in Madrid, so she's Italian, but born in Madrid and lived in New York from three. And um, she goes on the stage at seven, tours the States that year makes $20,000. So she is. So my thing is, you know, there's the trope, isn't it? The child star trope. Do they end up like Michael Jackson and Macaulay Culkin? Or do they end up like Shirley Temple as US ambassador to Czechoslovakia? <laughs> do they make a success of it? Or is it is it ultimately the weight around their neck? I think this is a really interesting bit of her. Yes. So her dad was a, a Sicilian tenor called Salvatore Patti. And her mum was, was, a, was a soprano, Caterina Barilli, born in February 1843, uh, as we've said. Her sisters were singers too, Amalia and Carlotta, and her brother Carlo was a violinist who married an actress called Effie German. So she really was. She, she oh. was born into showbiz. Show showbiz. Show business show, show. show. Totally. Yeah. Um, moved to the Bronx. And what do we know about her sort of younger, or, or sort of younger to teen years? She, she's successful throughout her sort of teenage years, it appears. Um, because she is crisscrossing America doing lots of, um, lots of performances, very opera based. So yeah. you know, that, that is popular, very popular. Um, on an 1862 tour, so right. she would be 19 years old if she's born. Yeah, she would. Eight, yeah, yeah. She gets invited to the White House. Um, and I think it's just, it's, it's where these stories touch history is always yeah, very interesting. Yeah. And the president is Abraham Lincoln. She's invited to sing for Abraham Lincoln. And she sings what becomes one of her signature songs, Home Sweet Home. And apparently it was, it was just after Lincoln, that Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln had lost their son Willie 
He was he died as a young lad, I think, typhoid, which I guess would be during the the um, Civil War. Mm. It would be around I'm that saying, time, maybe mm, just before just before the Civil okay. War, perhaps. Um, but anyway, uh, she they, they were moved to tears by um, Patty's performance, and 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 she did an encore. Should we um, should we listen to Home Sweet Home? Yeah, this was as Dave said. This was her. This became her signature song. lovely wasn't it it is i've strange. my granny my old welsh granny used to sing that oh well, there you she go used to warble around the house singing that well, that's an interesting was, connection yeah. as we will discover later absolutely okay so then then, then she moves to england this is it and she became a neighbor of james and mine this is very <laughs> weird. So, aged 18 she was invited to p- perform at covent garden and she was a complete hit she seems to have been a hit she all a through hit. her life. She, and, and success so she, after success. What do you do when you when it's eighteen sixty one and you you you're a hit in Common Garden? You um you buy a house in Clapham. Yeah, which is what she did. And I think we both live in Clapham, and it's sort of equidistant between our two it's, houses. She's bought, could... She bought a house on a place called Atk- Atkins Road, which is just off the South Circular, just off Poinders Road. To anyone who knows, or parallel to Poinders Road, anyone who knows the area, and it was called Pierpoint House, and she renamed it. Rossini Villa, yes, she bringing a bit Rossini. of Italy yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, her favourite composer, and she used it as her base uh, from which to kind of tour Europe and become this massive name. I think she bought it in cash. I mean, th- this woman earned a lot of money. You know, back to the tour, the first tour when she was seven, she earned twenty thousand dollars. That's crazy. And at her money. peak, she was earning five thousand dollars a night, which yes, which is equivalent today to. Well, depending on who, what you read, ninety-nine thousand uh, dollars or fifty thousand. So fifty thousand to a hundred grand, basically. Yeah, that's incredible. And apparently, she used to demand five thousand pounds a night in gold before, before her she went on stage. Yeah. What? Hey, it's a bit like um, Aretha Franklin. In fact, I was listening to a podcast where she was singing for the president. It would be Clinton, perhaps, right. or Obama, maybe Obama. Yeah. And one of the other musicians, Aretha Franklin, had left her her purse on the floor by the seat that she stood. She sat yeah. on before she stood to to, to sing. Yeah. And the other musician picked the purse up to hand to her, and Aretha got apparently quite aggressive, grabbed the purse off him, because traditionally singers got ripped off, particularly black female singers yeah. in the period when Aretha was growing up, yeah. and uh, promoters never paid them. So she always demanded getting paid up front in cash 
before she went on stage. Even when you're singing for a president? I doubt. I think that was probably Don't Touch My Purse. But, muscle but, memory. But, but, you know, that's where she kept the stash wow. before she was How paid. So nobody touched Aretha's purse. So on tour from using Clapham as her base, Patty, she went to South America, she went to Russia, she went all around Europe. Um, she became friends with Tchaikovsky, in, as you do. Well, she she's just... She's connected, isn't she? Very connected. She she meets everybody. She's she, I mean, you know, the fact that at nineteen she's in, invited to the White House. She, yeah. She's yeah. she's a really significant star. Uh, Verdi described her as uh, in eighteen seventy seven said that she was perhaps the finest singer who had ever lived. Yeah, and a stupendous artist. Well, I, I, I'm going to pick three three um, contemporary sort of novels where she is featured in. Oh, go on. So she she's Oscar she met Oscar Wilde actually they were both touring America in in the 80s the 1880s and they ended up um I think she went to see him and he went to see her and yeah. they spent I don't think there was any romantic attachment there but there was <laughs> they they spent a, some time together having some fun and in a picture of Dorian Gray the baddie Henry Wotton the one who's trying to corrupt Dorian Gray takes him to see Patty at, um where does it say actually it doesn't say where they it just says they went to see her and uh, Dorian reports back the next day, sipping some pale yellow wine from a delicate gold-beaded bubble of Venetian glass. He says, she is perfectly charming and sang divinely. <laughs> so she's it. She, so that was written in 1890. So she, you know, she, she would be, it'd be like ch- name-checking Madonna in, yeah, a, in, a, in yeah. a book in the, in the 1990s sort yeah. of thing. Edith Wharton in The Age of Innocence has people going to see... Um, Patty and and a member of the, the circle that she's describing um, says no one but Patty ought to attempt the son sonambula, which must be a, a piece of music that I'm afraid I don't know. And then Tolstoy also in Anna Karenina um, has characters talking about how wonderful Patty is. So she's she, really, she she's a, in the zeitgeist. Yeah, you know? yeah, she cast a spell clearly. I mean, it's, it's almost like in the olden days, if you were famous, you bump into other famous people. That's all you kind of did. Yeah, you know. We've we've encountered this so much during this series. Just everyone knows everyone else. Everything connects. So she was also quite a diva, according to uh, to the rough guys. She used her light voice with unerring charm and elegance. Was the highest paid opera singer of all time, as discussed, and opera's most demanding diva, quote unquote. Um, now, her contract apparently said that her name should be bigger in print than any other member of the cast. Absolutely, which is kind of fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. Um, in his memoirs, the famous opera promoter, uh, someone called Colonel Mapleson, recalled Patty's stubborn personality and sharp business sense. She reportedly had a parrot whom she trained to shriek, cash, cash, whenever Mapleson walked uh, in the room. I just love that. I mean, I mean <laughs> that's, that is diva. That is a sense of humour. But with it, yes, with a dollop of eccentricity. Show me the money. Show exactly. me the money. Um, but she invested wisely, we are told, and... Yeah. Perhaps why she ended up like Shirley Temple and not um not like Michael, Michael Jackson. Jackson. She she lived a long life. She had plenty of money through it. She had several marriages. Yeah, during, now let's talk about time. that. She she had a, a an interesting personal life, didn't she? Can I I declare I think she's rather sexy, I have to say. Dave. What we what we're gonna find out is that recording technology wasn't really available until the end of her career. So when Fred does finally record her, she's in, in her sixties. So you're hearing a voice at, at the end of it, it's, it's she's retired. Uh, she's recording after her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she's still. I think she's still doing professional tours, but not operas. She does, you know, the greatest hits uh, for select audiences. But the photo- photography is is developed by that point. So mm. there are there are lots and lots of pictures for her. And I, 
I would I would describe as a little bit coquettish. Um, right. She's got a very nice figure. She's um, described as having girlish good looks, and I, I would say that. I mean, she's she's Italian um, background. There, there is something of Madonna about her early pictures. She's got that kind That's of slightly yes. chubby face, quite pretty. Yeah. And and full of character. And she certainly. Yeah. She sounds yes, exactly. I and think she and she certainly liked a little bit of romance. Oh yeah. Um, so she married three times. Three times. And interestingly, the, the, there were significant age gaps both both ways. Both ways. Do you, do you want to talk through them? Well, I I know that the the first two husbands were a lot older. Yeah. And the the third husband was a lot younger. A lot younger. A lot so, younger. So she married. She, she married three. The first one was uh, Marcus of Co. Yes. Um, but apparently, it didn't come with a title for her, which always slightly aggrieved her. Henri de Roger de. Henri de Roger de. Yeah. You're much better. Cahusac. Cahusac. So she married him when she was 25. And he was 18 years older. So he he was 43 when they married. And apparently, both had affairs. Before, during. And after, because she was engaged as a minor to Henry de Lossy, who was the Baron de Ville in France. And she was, the, she was seeing plenty of other people as well, by, by, t- by the accounts I've seen on the internet. Tenor called Mario, who apparently bragged at Patty's first wedding that he'd already made, already made love to her many times. And that, that wedding was the St. Mary's Church in, in Clapham. In Clapham. That, that's, was it? So in, in Clapham, there's, there's, um, if you go at the beginning of the high street going, South, yeah. There, there's a church behind a pub called the Bellevue, and that's where that's where um, she got married. I've been to funerals there. Never, never a marriage. Now, look, we should say the phrase ma- "making love" in 1868 might mean something different it could to what be, it does it could, today. Well, it definitely used to mean paying court. To. Yes, I th- let's let's assume that's what it yeah. meant. I think let's give a you know, who knows, who knows. Um, so, anyway, the so first marriage ended. They divorced yeah. in 1885. But um, they they, they actually her. separated about eight years before. They she, separated before, and she they? meets somebody ah. in eighteen in that in the year she separates, she meets somebody else, and they live together for eight years before they're able to get married. Living in sin in the eighteen eighties, yeah, wow. in Wales, in Wales. But but she also lost half her money from her first divorce. Yes, yeah, he was um, an expensive divorce. So who's the second husband? The second one um, was a, a French tenor, so a, mu- a musician. I mean, she comes from a family of musicians that presumably suited her more. Ernest, this, this, Ernesto Nicolini. Yeah, this one seems to be the one that was probably the love of her life. I think it, yeah. he he. Uh, so they lived together sort of seven or eight years, and then they married eighteen eighty six. And they la- this marriage lasted until his death, which took her into her 50s. So she married him when she was 43. And yeah. they, they were married for 13 years and lived together for seven. And they were the ones that bought the castle in Wales yeah, that now we'll, this we'll is, come this is, to. This is great. But didn't he cut her out of his will? Just to- yeah, that, that would seem strange. The, I mean, the woman's loaded. Yeah. She, you know, she, she is seriously, seriously yeah. rich. So maybe that was it. But um, there seemed to be some suggestion... Certainly on the Wikipedia page, yeah. that, that um, they'd had uh, tense moments tense. together. Yeah. So she married. She married Nicolini, and, and he was nine re- years older than her. He was nine years old. Yeah. She then retired, and they bought a castle in Wales. Why in Wales? But I, she seemed to love it. Oh my goodness! This this <laughs> this is incredible. So she did a tour of America that, that was a bit of a. It was meant to be a farewell tour, yeah. and it it bombed. It didn't go well. I don't think she sold out. Her voice was on the turn. Yeah. And because she had all this money, she bought a castle in Wales called, called the, the, well, you're, you're a plastic Welshman, Craig, Dave. I'm the, plastic. Craig Enos. Craig Enos Castle, just in, in the upper Swansea Valley. Yeah. She bought it for three and a half thousand pounds in 1878. 
And Craig, Craig means rock, and Nos means night. So rock, rock of rock, the night, rock of the night. That sort of thing. Darkness, rock in darkness, rock nice. in night. Um, it was the first. Pri- it was thought to be the first private house in Wales to have electricity. Well, she, she she bought it. So she bought it for three and a half grand, three and a half thousand pounds. Well, bearing in mind she was making five thousand pounds, and there was no such thing as income tax. Of course. Uh, oh no, no, yeah. actually, sorry, there was income tax, but it wasn't very high at all. So basically, one was, night's performance small would change. pay for it was cash, and 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 she bought it, and then and then spent a fortune developing. So there's electricity. Do you know? Here's here's a factoid. Did the first house in the UK to have electricity. Buckingham Palace? No, it was Cragside, just outside Rothbury in Northumberland. What is Cragside? Is it's it a big house? A it's just a posh. Huge, yeah. Huge. Well, th- this th- there's a picture of the. Um, in fact, there's a wonderful documentary about Patty in Wales by the Brecon Parks, Brecon National Parks. There's like a YouTube channel. They yeah. do lots of things about the countryside. They do one on Patty, and it's really quite interesting. Go. And it shows lots of pictures from Craigie Noss. So she, it sounds and, incredible. She, how she did a Neverland. She did a Michael Jackson. This is a Neverland. She, this is, it, this this is, is a yeah, Neverland. Yeah. She added to this castle a North Wing, a South Wing, a Clock Tower. A conservatory, a winter uh, the garden. Conser- the, oh no, it's the winter garden is huge. It's like Kew Garden and a theatre. Yeah. Now this wasn't just any theatre. Can we just zone in on the theatre she built? Uh, it's a. It's now a Grade One listed opera house. Right. It was called the Adelina Patti Theatre. It seats 150 people. It's absolutely lovely. She wanted it to be the mini version of of La Scala in Milan. It was yeah. the architect based on that. Now, if if COVID hadn't happened, we were planning on doing this edition this episode from the castle we were going to get in touch and see if we could go down and do it from the stage of the theater because not only um did it seat 150 people it had it had 10 it's got 10 corinthian columns supporting the ceiling in between these columns are the names of various composers Murdy, verdi mozart rossini, rossini yeah. all gilded uh, and then you've got patty's monogram on the walls between them but but the design incorporates a mechanical auditorium floor, which can be raised to turn the room into a ballroom or lowered and sloped towards the stage to turn it into a theatre. Yeah. So, but, but this house is technologically on the edge. Yes. You know, so, so the, the generator that they use that there's a picture of in, 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 in that documentary I was talking about, it's, well, it, it, we're in we're in a studio that's probably what five meters by five meters. Yeah, yeah. It's it looked like it was probably three or four times the size that the room the size of the generator. Well, just a generator, and it also had an ice making facility that could make a ton of ice at a time. I mean, she, she's pushed out. She probably likes a gin in the evening, and that's I, that's the first thing I thought of. Yeah, it's probably a gin and tonic thing. Yeah. Um, so, tech, I mean, what an incredible theatre! I think Brixton Academy used to have a floor like that because I went to an event there. And it had been turned into a flat floor, oh, wow. but maybe it wasn't mechanical. Maybe she was in a, a, even ahead of the, the the music halls of London. I mean, um, it had an organ, a vast organ, which she'd um, got on a tour of the US. And there's a gallery at the back of her theatre where the domestic staff could sit. Yeah, that's nice. Well, two, two things. They used to have a Christmas party every year for the staff, so they must have then raised the floor so raised they could the f- have a dance, and there would be a tree at one end. And Patty would sit, and they had forty or fifty staff. You know, this this was Neverland. Amazing. And she'd hand presents around, and then they'd have a dance, and um, Patty would dance with the, the butler and the senior men, and 
Nicolini would dance with, you know, the 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 senior matron and the senior ladies. I love. I'd love Patty. I think she's wonderful. You you know, she's a big billiard player. Well, this is it. Another thing she had in her uh, castle was a two thousand dollar slash pound billiard table. She became a reputable player apparently, making guest appearances. At major billiard events, yeah, and and local billiard halls. I, 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 you know, I've been to a few, uh, well, snooker halls, but you can play billiards in them in South Wales. She did fancy shots, apparently. <laughs> I, I can imagine with a fag yeah, in, with one a... corner playing, you know, kissing kisses off the red in white into the top pocket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely brilliant. You know, I've got a theatre at home. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she, um, so the opening of this theatre, she had um, journalists from the Daily Telegraph, obviously. Uh, the Figaro and the Boston Herald. That's a Herald. very good newspaper. Very good. They got through 450 bottles of champagne, which would have been nicely chilled, apparently. So anyway, so she lived in this wonderful, slightly, slightly, very eccentric castle with her husband, who, as Dave said, she adored. And I think she she gave recitals in her theatre, didn't she? Absolutely. She became, yeah. as, as she re- entered her 50s and 60s, her recitals became a bit more populist. She ditched the kind of more complicated operas and do, as you say, the greatest hits. In her own theatre, and and it, um, it, she made it available for the local community. So yeah. um, you know, male voice choir sang there. The local opera society put things on. You know, she and uh, and she, guess what? Her and Ernesto always sang the leads. Of course, <laughs> apparently the stage the stage was um, it had a backdrop that had Patty riding in a chariot. Yeah, of course, <laughs> that's, that's what you need. So you're probably asking. You might be asking. Maybe you're not. Where is Fred in all this? How does Fred and the gramophone company fit into this? Well, he had clearly been trying to get her for some time because she was the most famous. She was the Madonna of the of the time. He he, he references her in her in his diaries and his memoirs early on about she is more than any of them. She's She's, the one I want. You know, Caruso was up and coming. Melba was up and coming. But this woman had been the star above them all yeah. and was probably gently falling to earth at, the, at this time. Yeah. She had done some phonograph recordings in about 1890 in, in New York for a guy called Thomas Marshall. Mm. But no one knows much about them and they've disappeared. They're lost. Yeah. So she she didn't actually exist on record at all, did she? And I'm not sure she ever heard them because right. we get to her reaction to this recording and yeah. it, it she she appears gobsmacked. Yes, to, um, to first. Yeah. So uh, the year is around 1905. Um, she's retired. There has been one change in her domestic habits. Ah, Sadly, um, Ernesto, her second husband, had died and she's, she, she doesn't waste any time. Within a year or so, she's married her third husband and this time there's no messing around, whereas... Hubby number one was 18 years older. Yeah. Hubby number two was nine years older. She is now marriage, uh, 56. Yeah. She's decided to marry someone in their 20s, 29 wow. years younger. So this new guy. Who is he? He's called, um, he's a baron. So she, she gets a title on this one. Um, Baroness, uh, is a, a Swedish guy, quite handsome. Um, I've got quite a few pictures of him and he's got a very big bushy mustache. Nice. And he favours a bowler. He's a bit. He's described in a couple of accounts as being priggish, a bit, a bit of a bore. And um, Patty at this point has forty or fifty staff, and he he cuts them back to yes, eighteen. He prunes so, the, so, the, the domestic. So stuff. you know she's spending money like water, but I guess she's just retiring at this point, so she's not going to have the same level of income. And he he oversees her, but but they they stay married until the end of her life. 
he d- I don't like the sound of this guy. Let her have as many staff as she wants. Frankly, no. I think. No, I think you've got to you've got to economise when you're not bringing in quite as much income as you you had before. And I think that's one one of the, the one of the troubles about child stars. They think it's going to go on forever. That's true. Have a that's look true. at Mr. Jackson, who had to start selling things off. So Fred in in December 1905, Fred announces uh, that he and Will, his brother, are going to Wales to record Patty. So they've obviously been wooing her. She said yes, and his diaries give some fantastic example. Uh, some, some fantastic colour in, in the whole process. It's quite a long quote, so I think what we'll do, we'll break it into kind of three bits and kind of have a little chat between each one. But the first segment, this is Fred's diary, and it's basically Patty saying she'll record and the demands that she makes. From the earliest days, says Fred, I had had the name of Patty and her marvellous singing dinned into my ears. To me, she was a goddess, enthroned beyond access of ordinary mortals like myself. Needless to say, to record the voice of Patty was the ambition of all talking machine companies. But both the gramophone and the phonograph were still too underdeveloped to warrant offering conditions attractive enough to overcome her prejudice against what she still regarded as a newfangled toy. However, time was flying, and the moment could not be lost forever if delayed too long. So at last, when again approached by the gramophone company, she said, quote, Well, if you go to my solicitor, Sir George Lewis... Her solicitor's a sir. Well, he goes to my solicitor, Sir George Lewis. He'll arrange everything, and I'll do whatever he advises. Uh, the conditions that George Lewis made were simple. The entire recording apparatus should be taken down to Craigie Noss Castle, uh, made ready for immediate use, and the operator was to wait there from day to day until the Baroness sh- said she was willing to sing. So, I mean, we've previously had Melba saying, bring an orchestra to Mayfair. This is a whole different order of magnitude of diviness, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's not across town. Come it's to a Wales. different country. Come yeah. to Wales with all your stuff, set it up, and then when I feel like it, I'll come and lay yeah. down a track. And I also looked, she also had right of approval. So just because they'd done the recordings didn't mean they had the right to release them. She she still had right of approval. It's That's incredible. So Fred and Will go. Shall I do the second bit, David? Yeah, you know, you're much better at this than well, me. A lovely, lovely reading. When my, <laughs> when my when my brother and I, this is Fred, went to Craigienos. Pronunciation is that right, Craigienos? Well, I, I don't speak Welsh, but on on the Brecon part, it's Craig, Craigienos, Craigienos. It's more like um, Craig in Ger- what, What's war Craig. in Germany? Craig. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, it's Craig. When my brother and I went to Craig. the castle, we travelled by a narrow gauge railway to Penwilt, now called Craigienos. And here a bus met us, and we drove to the sombre and imposing edifice where the singer lives. We were greeted at the door by her agent, Mr. Alcock, and his wife. I heard later that when my brother and I arrived, Madame instructed Mrs. Alcock to, to take a peep at these two suspicious characters and report to her what they really looked like. When Mrs. Alcock returned and said we looked like harmless young men, Patty said, well, look after them well. Um, we soon discovered that every provision had been made for receiving us. Two large bedrooms had been cleared and were placed at our disposal. And here we assembled our recording machine. So far, so good. Um, and, th- and I think what they do is they put a bit like the new um, City Road. The City Road office. They put the uh, cutting device in one room and they have put the horn through some curtains that separated that the separated two rooms. rooms. Yeah, so they had and a- then she sang in the, um, the room with the horn in. They put a curtain over one of the doors. You're absolutely yeah. right. And through a hole in the curtain, projected the recording horn. The piano was placed on wooden boxes, elevation, 
And when Madame Patty entered the room, she was terribly intrigued as to what was behind that long horn. Um, she had the curiosity of a girl and peeped under the curtain to see what was on the other side. Which all sounds great fun. Fred adds, do not imagine for a moment, however, that when we set up the recording machine, Madame rushed into the room to sing. Not a bit of it. She needed two full days to get used to the idea, during which she simply looked in every now and again and saw the ominous preparations for immortalising her voice. She did not know whether to be glad or sorry. To reward us for this long wait, she would say, those two nice gentlemen, let them have champagne for dinner tonight to make up for their disappointment. I think it's great. So, so she, she's obviously nervous of, of well, this. So she invited them down yeah. to record her, and then they set it up, and she still isn't committed. She's, well, like, she's not ready. She's, she's not, not ready. ready. And I can I can understand that. You know, I think if most, well, most singers of a certain outlook and temperament yeah. would probably behave in similar ways if they had the power and the money yeah. uh, to do this. And she clearly has. But what's great is. What Fred and Will do in your time? They're getting pissed all they're the getting, time. I'm drunk on her champagne. Yeah, I mean, there's more a, champagne. Clint. <laughs> it's weirdly, um, Land and Ronald, who was there a accompanist, yes, um, and was also a conductor at Covent Garden. He was there too, wasn't he? Well, no, 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 no. he wasn't there. The, the shot was he wasn't. He'd done all the introducing of her ah. to um, uh, the gramophone company and been involved in the negotiation, and in fact. When Fred first meets him, she, he refers to Landon as, as Patty's um, accompanist. Yeah, I can't I, say that word either. <laughs> uh, the person who plays piano yeah, so yeah, that, yeah. She, that, that she can sing. So he must have figured quite large, accompanist, that's the one, isn't it? <laughs> quite large in Patty's life, is involved in negotiating. And then when it comes to recording, he's not there. I th- but I, I thought he went because I've got, there's a diary here from, from Ronald Landon. Do, do you know what? I've completely got that wrong. I think he was there. I've co- completely got that wrong. He wasn't involved in the negotiations. But he was there. He was there. <laughs> so Landon was at the recording, probably at Patty's um, insistence. In fact, he, he says as much in his diaries. That Landon says, the pianist, uh, uh, on hearing that I was in some way connected with the company, the gramophone company, I received a charming invitation from Patty to stay for a few days with the request that I should play for her. The whole scheme fascinated me and I accepted the invitation with the greatest pleasure. Yeah. Those few days will forever remain impressed on my memory as among the happiest I have spent. She was a delightful hostess, and her husband, Baron Sederstrom, he's the final husband. He's the, the final the one. Swedish guy was the kindest and gentlest of men. Hmm. She, not priggish. In not priggish. She was just a few weeks off sixty. Sixty-three. Sixty-three. Yeah. Excuse me. And her voice in the room was still amazing. After dinner, she would get me to play her some uh, some of Tristan, which she had gradually learned to love, and would then, after a little persuasion, just see if she was in the voice. And it was then that she sang divinely for her husband, brother-in-law, and myself. We notice, were all... notice that Will and Fred are not at Will, dinner. Will and Fred not? Oh, do you think they're, up? they're I, in their I wing? If, yeah, they probably had champagne earlier probably... and they're back with the staff. <laughs> we were all quite overcome by her great artistry and agreed that the records must be made the next evening. She assented, and accordingly, at 11 o'clock, everything was made in readiness for the event. Uh, just a tiny bit more. Her first selection was Mozart's famous uh, Voice Sapite. Sapete. Uh, she was very nervous, uh, but made no fuss and was gracious and charming to everyone. Now, this is when she, it, it all went a bit deverish though. Yeah. When she'd finished her first record, she begged to be allowed to hear it once more. This meant that the record would be unable to be used afterwards. 
Yeah. Because it was only a master. She's just playing off the master, yeah. yeah. But as she promised to sing it again, her wish was immediately granted. I mean, that's a bit... So let me hear how good I sounded, but we know that no one will ever be able to hear that, so I'll just do it again afterwards. It's slightly backwards, isn't it? I will never forget the scene. She had but, never but then, heard... But then, anyone comes into recording studio now will do a first first take and then have a bit of a listen back to it. That's you true. Know, that's it, true, true. She's, she's logical, but, you know... She had never heard her own voice. Well, she wouldn't, would she? No. Why would she? When a little trumpet gave forth the beautiful tones, she went into ecstasies. She threw kisses into the trumpet and kept on saying, Ah, oh, mon Dieu, maintenant je comprends pourquoi je suis patty. Now I understand why I'm patty. Oh, oui. Oh, oui. Quelle voix, what Quel a voice. Voix. What a voice. Quel artiste, what an artist. Je comprends tout. I, re- I understand everything. I get it now. I now this understand is why I'm, why so, I'm so fabulous. <laughs> Her enthusiasm, says Landon. Yeah. Ronald. Ronald Landon. Landon Ronald. Her enthusiasm was so naive and genuine that the fact that she was praising her own voice seemed to us to be right and proper. She soon settled down and got to work in real earnest, and the records now known all over the world were duly made. How amazing. Should we listen to one more? Should we yeah. listen to that one, uh, Voice Chase the Piece, so the, the one that he's talking about? I, uh, I'm glad you said that, because I can't pronounce that. This is from The Marriage of Figaro. Here we go. Patty singing from the Marriage of Figaro. Interestingly, or not, that was the piece I did for my grade three clarinet. Can you still play it? No. Oh. Oh, it was terrible. It's the only piece I could ever play. And don't be impressed, Dave. Not that you are. Because, did you because pass it? Just. But yeah. you start at grade three on clarinet. You oh, see. do you? So you don't even, I didn't even have to build up to it. I passed just. I went on to grade four, found it so difficult. I quit. Oh, I, I hate a quitter. I know. Oh, sorry. I mean, you could never accuse. Adelina Patti. You couldn't. You couldn't. Can I, before we carry on with this, I, yeah. I, I found a picture on the internet, and I'll put I'll put this on on the notes. But this is carrying on my sort of slight obsession with her, unsavory or unsuitable obsession. But there's a picture of her sitting in in what looks like a bit of a summer house in um, in the castle, in the castle, in the grounds of the castle, with a young. It's it's it was taken in 1904, and she she is standing in the in the doorway and sitting on on the step of the doorway. Wearing plus fours and socks, with a with a incredibly bushy moustache that looks like it's been waxed at the end. So who's the, this? Is her? That's the husband. That's the Baron, and ah. then she's standing behind with an incredibly narrow waist and looking. I find her quite attractive. Dave, I know I keep going on about that. this, but she's sixty-two. She looks about thirty-five. She looks the same age as him. <laughs> I, I I just came across that. I had to share that. Well, Sorry. we'll put it on online, and you can see whether Dave has a weird. <laughs> Obsession with <laughs> retired Victorian singers. I, I, by the looks of her, she's quite short as well, and and uh, I'm quite short. So that, that, yeah, you know, in another life. In another world, Fred was quite short too. Yes. Um, which brings me neatly on to Fred's account of the actual. Oh, we've got to go back to the recording so, bit again <laughs> because he. I've got plenty more pictures of her. Stop it. 
<laughs> Although it's beautiful. The, the, the singing is beautiful. She wasn't the easiest person to record. This is what Fred said. Um, it was an ordeal for her to sing into this small funnel, i.e. the recording horn, um, while standing in one position. With her natural Italian temperament, she was given to flashing movement and to acting her parts. My job is to was to pull her back when she made those beautiful attacks on the high notes. At first, she didn't like this and was most indignant. But later, when she heard the lovely recordings, she showed her joy just like a child and forgave my impertinence. So he literally physically, when she hit Pulled. the high notes, because they're louder, yeah. you have to go further back from the horn Almost to like modulate the volume. to pull her yeah. back. So he was know. literally yeah. manhandling her. Heaving her backwards. Sorry. Ex- she was used, um, he says, in a queenly way to rewarding any services or kindness that people showed her. She had a large and noble heart, but was decidedly temperamental. She would be calling everyone darling one minute and devil the next. Of course, of course you would. She's a diva. But perhaps a woman who had sacrificed so much for her art and for her friends and relatives could be forgiven these outbursts of temper. And this is really interesting what Fred said now. I've always instinctively felt that Patty was the only real diva I ever met. Now, That's really interesting because you mentioned Calve with her entourage, yes. the Indian lady. Gorda Jan. Gorda Jan. And her massive entourage. Yeah. But this, but this was, lady out-divas the divas. He then says, but she, she was also the only singer who had no flaws for which to apologise. No doubt she had so mastered the art of living and protecting herself from the public gaze that she could plan her appearances for just these moments when she was at her freshest and brightest, i.e. little bit often, you know, when I, when I do go out in public. When and I particularly do. when your voice is older. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's wise doing this, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that she never overtaxed herself and her appearances were only for short periods, exactly. Um, she was very devout. She offered prayers in her private chapel. And from 11 to 12 o'clock in the morning, for four days in succession, we made the record. So only one hour a day. One hour a day. So they've, they've waited two days, drinking champagne. She then sings in front of Landon. Landon says, you're good to go. And, and then, then she says, she, great, okay, yeah, yeah. we'll do an hour at a time. But then she's Amazing. 62 years old. She's 62. I shall never forget the delight, Fred says, of standing close beside the delicate source from which radiated these pure tones, uh, whose message of delight will live and vibrate through the ages. And it was... Um, it was as though one actually saw the spirit and soul seeking another abode. I mean, that's... <laughs> he's a, a bit theatrical, isn't he? He's, he's a bit theatrical. Shall we talk to Michael Volpe now and see what he has to say about Patty? Absolutely. Now that we've heard her voice a few times. Yes. Over to you, Michael. Over to you, Michael. We're joined by Michael Volpe, the founder of Opera Holland Park, recently retired as its general director... Michael, hi. Um, hang on, hang on. He's far too young to have recently <laughs> retired, hasn't he? <laughs> Michael. You almost got away with that intro. Adelina Patti. Yeah. Was Verdi right? Was she, quote-unquote, the finest singer who ever lived? Well, these recordings wouldn't suggest so, I would right. say. Uh, but who am I or us to argue with Verdi? And if he thought so. I mean, I think he would have also had a a, a wider experience of singers than most. But even then, you know, uh, it was relatively limited. But uh, the Mozart recording is is pleasant and shows she was very much able to manipulate her voice and bring a, an unforced quality to it. Uh, some of our some of um, the phrasing is nice, mm. and ultimately, we don't always look for perfection in singing. You know, we want a whole interpretation, and she you know, of the text and of nuance and of balance. So we hear an accomplished singer. I, I should add at this point, 
and this relates to all singers we've discussed, that it's a, a matter of personal taste. It's always a matter of personal taste. It's entirely possible to love the sound of a singer, but find plenty of other people who absolutely loathe the sound of that singer. Uh, and it's the same way that you'd say, I, I love Aretha Franklin above, you know, Ella Fitzgerald or whatever. You know, we, we just respond in a certain way. Yeah. I love Morrissey and Morrissey can make people headbutt the wall. Oh, yeah. I, I agree with the, yeah. with the wall headbutters. I, yeah. I think it's an atrocious noise. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So there you uh, go. Well, I, you see, I, I've, this, I mean, this is a whole other debate, but I, I adore Morrissey and I love his music. His songs are getting better and better. It's just him. He's turned into, a, he's turned into a complete, a, yeah. Objectionable. Yeah. Yeah. Dick. Yeah. But does yeah. that matter? Come on, let's stop being snowflakes and... and, and uh, oh, hold on. He only said the word <laughs> snowflakes. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I, I think it's hard to say from these recordings. Yeah, yeah it's really hard to say. And that, I mean, that's the key, key thing is the technology that they recorded these, um, made these records on. I think we described it in previous podcasts, but they only got a certain part of the, of the oh, sound wave in there. incredibly narrow. So yeah, what yeah. she sang in the room isn't what's on that disc no. it's only a small part yeah. of it so no although i although i think there are you know there are you know there are there are oral qualities to the sound and then there are kind of literal qualities to the sound and and how does she mm. say a phrase and whatever and you can pick up those things but in terms of of what the voice was was she the finest mm. singer who ever lived well you know verdi you yes. know, a lot of lot of great singers came after Verdi. Yeah. You know what I mean. Yeah. So, and, and what's interesting about Patty? She didn't record until she was quite old. I think she was in her sixties when she mm. How important is age? How important a factor is age in opera? Well, if you're a soprano and you want to keep singing all these enormously high lying, enormously energetic, physically demanding roles, then you know that's hard to do. But a lot of great singers have worked well into their sixties and mm. their seventies and their eighties. And they can still sing wonderfully, but the voice changes, the quality changes, and the vocal cords are not as athletic as they were, and the musculature that supports the voice in the, both the throat and the, the abdomen, you know, the, uh, what's it called? Uh, diaphragm, diaphragm yeah. uh, are not as efficient, but a great singers maintain that technique and yeah. through their years. And that, that means they can keep going. And I suppose Domingo's a good example. Yeah. Although he, he kept going as a tenor for a little bit longer f than m a lot of people suggested he might right. have wisely done, but he started singing baritone roles. So the voice darkens with age and, and sometimes it just falls apart. And I think there are elements of that coming through on this recording that yeah. that sounds like a, a voice in its sixties. Yeah. And that not necessarily well maintained. I mean, Callas is a good example. She returned to do it. Very famously, and there were films of this, where she did a sort of a piano recital tour, and she sort of came back, and she'd lost tons of weight, and, mm. and uh, it was oh, really. Times. I mean, it was it was unlistenable. Mm. It was tragic. Really. You, I, I've just been reading the, uh, the I can't remember the last train from Memphis, the Elvis Presley biographies, mm. and I listened to all the music that's, that's referred right, and that his last two years, yeah, it's just. Terri it's just yeah. terrible. I'm, I'm no, but there is a, that is yeah. also a man who's 
been incredibly self-abusive. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. but a lot of singers, are, you know, I mean, great singers, you know, still performing in their sixties, who are, you know, they bring a different character to their voice. They do sort of compromario roles. They bring great experience. It's still yeah. a beautiful sound. I mean, I remember John Rawnsley, who was considered one of probably one of Britain's greatest baritones. He became yeah. very famous having done the the uh, the Jonathan Miller. Uh, Rigoletto, yeah. uh, ENO back in the eighties, you know, the mafia one. Yeah. And it was, it's a beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, I've only been to two operas and that is and one that of my one of them. Yeah. 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 As a Verdi baritone and yeah. Verdi baritones have a particular tone and delivery. And John performed, he, he spent many years away from opera. He was massive long run as yeah. Dr. Doolittle. He did West End. And then he came back to opera and he, he sang in, uh, he sang for us in a, in a Verdi opera called, uh, or was it Louisa Miller? I think it was the first one. And, and he had an aria in it and I was watching him and I was listening to him. And there were, and the voice wasn't clearly what it was yeah. back in when he was in his thirties and his whatever, but there was still an artistry and a quality to the voice that was just fantastic. And yeah. you just, you could just stand and listen to it. And you say any young baritone needs to listen to the way he delivered that note. You know, it perfectly absorbed. Yeah, really. So I don't think age is a is a kind of is a critical kind of but you you really struggle yeah, to do the, yeah. the big high lying and, and energetic roles as yeah. you get into your sixties and seventies. I think that's really interesting that how a song a, a voice develops over a life and oh, it changes. Does. It I sure, really absolutely about enough. And, yeah. Well, it's interesting when you we spend a lot of time with young singers, obviously mm. in, in 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 opera generally, but yeah. at Opera on the Park we have a and you, you know one of the really best sopranos around at the moment is a singer called Natalia Romagnu. And mm. uh, she sang with us when she was, you know, much younger. 2012, I think, was the first one. She's now being lauded. She just won a big RPS prize, mm. Singer of the Year. And she's a fabulous, fabulous singer. And, and you see a lot of singers at 23, 24, 25 who are really exciting. They've got this fantastic sound. And, and then you sometimes see them again when they're 30, 32. And nah, they've kind of plateaued and it's not as exciting and some at around 30 really when the voice begins to the, the techniques kicked in that it thickens the you know the, it, suddenly the voice can just bloom wow. and that's the sort of turning point yeah. when it gets to a certain maturity so 30 35 is really young it's, really, i was gonna say that it's really young a, a quite named opera singer you know they get into their prime later but it's it's always a fascinating point to to hear a singer around 30 it's also really young that, to know that your career is is not going to be what you hoped it would isn't it well i mean you'll it's necessary that they'll have a still have a great yeah. regular career but the singer who becomes thrilling yeah and mm -hmm. will start being coveted around the world and start being coveted by the big houses yeah you know they're they're few and far between but you know there aren't you know there aren't thousands of those yeah. you can yeah. still have a fantastic career and a really successful career but that singer who you go whoa yeah. you know you yeah. absolutely and then, if i remember rightly melba and calve i can't remember caruso but those two both had a sort of 10 years 
from 20 to 30 when it didn't really work. Mm. Yeah. And it's around 30 that they both kicked off. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the yeah. voice gets to a point where it can, it can manage these roles. I yeah. mean, these are enormous athletic feats, some of these yeah. roles. Yeah. They really are. So, Michael, going back to what you said at the very beginning of this chat, f- from all the records you've heard from this period 120 odd years ago, 120 years ago, do, do they perhaps, do they do a disservice to the singer in their limitations? I think on the whole they do. I, I mean, if you're, if you are a novice and you think, oh, opera interests me, I might get into opera, start listening to it, you would not listen to these recordings. Mm. And I would highly recommend that you didn't, <laughs> right? You know. Um, so what I think they are is just a fascinating record. A snapshot of... of mm. Singers who often work with the composers of the music that we love today, mm. you know. So it, it is fascinating. And it's fascinating to see the different techniques and fashions and styles and, you know, the way they sang. Unless you really have an experienced ear, and unless you really want to sit and examine that technique, then I would give them a swerve. Mm. I would, you know, go and buy the latest, you know, audio fully dynamic ranged recording you know because that's where you'll get the taste for opera from this this won't persuade you in any way so what they miss mainly is the dynamic range yeah. and and that's quite a thing yeah yeah really, it's re- really it noticeable on, on the melba episode we saw because she did some recording to the electronic microphone right towards the end of her career and that okay. got more of the dynamic range, yeah. But although her voice probably would have deteriorated, yeah, but the slightly quality yeah, of recording is is market, markedly but, different. Yeah, yeah, but we all, we when well, James I, and I heard it after listening to the acoustic recordings, we just went, "Wow!" Yeah, absolutely. We it. Well, it's yeah. interesting because it's all about as you you know you can remaster these much you like, but this, it's all about how much information was captured in the first place. Mm. And the modern recordings, I mean, I I've got a a remastered set of recordings of Giuseppe Di Stefano, who's my favourite tenor. And I've always liked it. And he's, you know, he was around till modern times. Mm. But but the, there was a set of recordings from around the fifties and sixties, which were remastered, and it really did bring out a lot more that you hadn't heard before, and the and the quality in his voice, these sort of almost imperceptible qualities and, and depths uh, uh, to to the sound, and and that was possible with later recordings because they were infinitely infinitely Tapes better on, recorded onto tape yeah that would have been absolutely yeah, so you'd have had multi-tracks that you could actually work with yeah that's my recording industry head yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what we should also remember about all of these and i think i mentioned is that they were real singers yeah they all performed they were the real thing yeah uh, uh you know and and if emma calvey was to stand in this room and sing in the corner it would blow you away probably yeah. but there are lots of popular recording artists these days who can be sort of you know rough approximation of opera singing Mm. and it can be dynamically improved but if they stood in this room you probably wouldn't hear them from the other side of the room but that's okay because if they make a you know a a pleasant sound and people go out and buy the records and it's a nice tune and i'm not going to mention names and whatever but these were real singers uh, and you know they Whatever we say about the recordings, and we thought of their techniques or their or their voice itself, they were proper singers. Our thanks to Michael Volpe for his insights and his time. A 
Okay, so so that's the recording bit, and I think there's a love. In fact, there's there's a lovely story of um, how gramophone company got their blessing. The she because she had approval of whether these recordings would be released, so they had to play them back to her, and if she liked them, she yeah, gave them the okay. Go, right, yeah. Of course, she wasn't going to come to London. Of course not. They had to go to her again in Craigienos. And who do they send? Our old friend that's mentioned in quite a lot of these podcasts, Sidney Dixon. Sidney. Now, Sidney was the one who charmed Emma Calvey into... He was quite good looking, was he? He was good looking, young man. In Maiden Lane, out of her carriage. In fact, we worked out he's actually not from Birmingham, he's from Manchester, Manchester. but but he was a good looking younger man. And old Fred sends him down to get the blessing. He was, I think at this point, um, head of sales for... um, for the gramophone company in the UK. So he's a senior senior exec. And what he does, he sets up the, you know, a state-of-the-art gramophone in one of her stately rooms. And apparently there's a staircase that leads down from it. And as she's starting to walk down the staircase, he plays back the recordings. And apparently it's exquisite. And she skips and dances. And then she goes over and puts her arms around the, the horn, the playback horn, and kisses it and says it's perfect. So she loves it. She's she says almost yes. kissing herself there. Yes. We all do that, though, don't we? <laughs> there was a second recording There was a second recording. Fred there. went back in 1906 with a French assistant, a man called Char- Charles uh, Chioplin. Who was Chioplin? Chioplin. 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 From Paris. He was working for the gramophone company at the time. And the castle was in a bit of a state of decay by 1906. And it was over dinner with the Alcocks, who were the, her manager slash housekeeper. Her agents. Her yeah, agents, forgive me. Yeah. That Fred sort of compared and contrasted the castle then with how it used to be. Um, how it used to be with Nicolini, her second husband, love of her life, was that they put operas on. I, I think, sorry, I need to jump in this because I recognise the name Alcock from something that I, I was reading. He was, I think, her land agent. So he looked after the estate. Oh, he was a estate manager. Because okay. I was immediately thinking it must be her live estate, agent, but right. it's not. No, no, no. Okay. So, so he was the, the, this is a couple that live on the that estate and make and sure the that the electricity works. And, and, the, and the, the ice is being churned out. And the, and the, the lake is stocked with carp. <laughs> and o- over dinner, Fred learns that Nicolini and her, they used to put on operas. Uh, in, husband in number two. Husband number two, yeah. the, the one she liked, loved a lot. And they would take on the um, the main parts in the love story. So they play the famous love scenes together to this adoring audience. Yeah. And apparently he was he was described as um Nicolini was keenly alive. And kept yeah, kept kept the diva continually amused and entertained. And entertained. Keenly alive. I like that. That yeah. might be a euphemism, I don't know. But um but now, back in nineteen oh six, the Alcocks were saying the, the place had a, a sober and slow tempo, t- yeah. tempo, which um, reflects the gut. Because Baron, he's the one that's got rid of half he's of the cut staff, all the domestic stuff, and stopped the spending. And things are Four hundred fifty bottles of champagne. Exactly. There's a lot of ivy everywhere. This kind of the, the, this castle has been consumed with the kind with with kind of nature as her power as a singer declines somewhat. Um, Fred uh, says that actually life in the Welsh hills must have been a bit dull for this. He calls her a little lady. Coming he, from a that's little something, man, a that phrase a he little, uses often about women, isn't um, it? Very, uh, very sexist. Very she, sexist. She quite obviously, approved. Patty quite obviously welcomed the, dis- the diversion of having her voice recorded it was, and was determined to enjoy it to the limit. Although it must have entailed a lot of extra work for her establishment, as in her house, yeah, I the, think you mean. Yeah, the staff. Yeah. Yeah. She frequently looked in on us and seemed happy in exchanging conversation and watching us at work. She was always sending us grapes from her big greenhouses. 
And when she when we left, she loaded us with a basket of choice fruit for our return so, journey. So to that's London. like she's got this thing that's like Kew Gardens glass house out, massive, out the side, yeah, yeah. which is now in Swansea in a park in Swansea. And she grew lots of fruit and um, and, and delicate flowers in there. That's amazing. So she's sixty three now. What well, well, one thing I just want to say. So when the first recordings came out, and I'm not sure whether that was 1905 or into 1906, yeah. it was a huge event, and they went absolutely gung ho. The gramophone company in publicizing it they, they put ads in 200 papers nationally how many 200 newspapers right. so all the local pa- you know yeah. the Grimsby evening news and the brecon news or whatever and uh, they took the whole front page of the daily mail it was just an advert for patty's patty is recorded this is amazing you know she was a big star because because as the rough guide to opera says quoting again her recordings were made after her retirement and they do not do her justice that's the quote but they're fascinating listening nonetheless it's amazing. Here's one other song, actually. This is called um, The Last Rose of Summer, and it's from an opera called Martha. does her voice justice i mean i'm no expert but i think that sounds pretty good hmm. it sounds very good um so she last sang in public um 24th of october 1914 at a red cross charity do yeah i think she threw a lot of effort behind raising funds and uh, the royal Mel- Hall. melba did yeah. the same didn't yeah. she she raised a lot of funds for for red cross and and uh our boys yeah yeah and she lived, I mean, she, she lived through the war, but died in, in 1919 of natural causes. Yeah, so I think she was 76 when she passed away. 76 passed away. But according to who you listen to, she may have left a bit of herself behind in the form <laughs> of... A ghost. A ghost. Apparently, yeah. Craigie Noss is haunted. Well, interestingly, because she passed away there. I mean, I don't know a lot about ghosts, but the, the body was taken... Should we just quickly do where she was buried? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think we should come back to the ghost. And Craigie Noss is, is very spooky. But she was she wanted to be buried near her father in, in um, Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. But more importantly, next to Rossini, the, the, who she loved more than any ah, other, other composer. She sang at his funeral. Yeah, she sang at his funeral. Then when she passed away, she wanted to be near him. And he's got a, a little mausoleum type thing there and her grave is, is is just next to it is this the famous cemetery in paris where jim morrison, jim morrison and you know um, the... oscar wilde is yes. buried there yeah. so she met oscar wilde and it was featured in a book and they're both in the same and call my agents has a few Good. scenes set in there have you seen call my uh, agents? i haven't yet no okay very recommended very recommendable yeah. yeah it's where it's where it's where all the school Summer holiday, gap, gap year, etc. Children go and children, people go with their guitars and they sing 
light my fire around Jim Morrison's grave. Gertrude Stein was there. It's Alice a beautiful grave. It's a beautiful yeah. actually. I like, right, a, she's, she's, I like a graveyard actually. I used to tend a graveyard at home for several years as a as a sort of um, pocket money job when I was a kid. Weirdo. Yeah, I like graveyards. <laughs> so anyway, so there she was next to Rossini. Yeah, and then. <laughs> Something happened in the in the afterlife of Rossini, and his body was exhumed and taken back to Italy. So she she had positioned herself next to him, thinking he couldn't get away, but uh, he he escaped. He's back in Italy. How now. very weird! Yeah. And she, the, the, the castle is full of par- paranormal phenomena, apparently. And yeah. I think there was a TV show. There uh, was some, yeah. most haunted or something that did a. There was there, there was one possible ghost sighting of Patty that that was that was debunked. One apparition. Apparently, the, a, a, a figure of a lady, a shadow, a semi-transparent dark shadow appeared uh, on the stairs of the castle as a statuette, da, da, da. Um, which obviously freaks everyone out. But apparently, apparently, out, if the moon moves in a certain angle, a statuette on one of the turrets cast a shadow that resembled a lady it's her. onto I'm, the floor I'm, of the I'm stairs. I'm a big believer in ghosts. I am. It's her. It is really is her. But there are various other things: unexplained noises, the sounds of footsteps, ghostly singing. Perhaps I've made that last one up. But you, 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 oh, you it's, know. it's a fact. It's now. a fact. It's, it is a fact now, uh, because it, this was a hospital in the war, so lots yes, of people died yeah. there. Yeah, so the house had a history before her and a history after her. And um, you yes. can have weddings there. It's now a wedding venue place. It looks lovely. Actually. It looks absolutely and, wonderful, and, yeah. despite the ghosts. And it sounds great. Ah, oh, sorry. Also, children's footsteps and giggles. I think children ghosts are more scary than adult ghosts. And talking of ghosts, we're going to end with a a recording that she made for husband number, I think... 1903. Three, three. husband number three, so the young chap. He's the the boring baron. The the boring baron. (laughs) She recorded him a New Year's message. Uh, it only lasts a minute. We'll play it all. And this was done with Fred. This so was done she with... recorded it as a gift for this, him. This for was a year. gift. But quite amazing, given that no one, you know, she'd never heard her voice before. So he could listen to this forever and ever. But here we go. And I think we'll say goodbye before we listen to this, just yeah. so you can leave on a spooky note. So, um, so, so that was, that was Adelina Patty. That was Patty. I'm smitten. He, and and what's is. great is she left, she ended up surrounded by people she loved, a bank balance still full, a, a great life. Yeah. Bless her. Bless her. Here she is. God bless you, my dear husband, for the new year, 1906. This is a message which I want you to keep for all time, so that you may have my voice ever with you, your loving Adelina, otherwise Patty. The Sound of the Hound was edited by Andy Hetherington. For more details on the topics discussed in this episode, visit soundofthehound.com. Or follow us on Twitter on at the sound of the H1 or on Instagram on the sound of the hound.